Hello and welcome to the Resilience Research Group's monthly seminar series. Each week we will be joined by a panel of researchers, organisations, health and social care workers and the public to discuss one topic related to resilience. So hello everyone and welcome to podcast number four of the Resilience Research Group podcast series. Uh, this one focuses on community resilience and how it relates to the COVID pandemic. So before we begin, uh, please could you briefly introduce yourself uh, to our audience? Hello, my name is Joe Boyden. Um, I'm Professor Emeritus of International Development from the University of Oxford. And my field of research is children's resilience in, in contexts of extreme adversity in, in a global setting. I'm Jay Mancini. I'm Professor Emeritus of uh, Human Development and Family Science at Virginia Tech and also adjunct professor of human development at the University of, of Georgia. Uh, but um, my area of research is really intersections of vulnerability and resilience. Hello, I'm Dr. Rebecca Graber. I'm a senior lecturer in, psych in psychology at the University of Brighton. And my area of research is in social contributors to resilience, so specifically in formal relationships such as peers. Yes, um, I'm Dennis Rillo Howell. I'm the founder of Psychreg, which is an online magazine which focuses on psychology and mental health. And I'm also a PhD student at the University of Edinburgh. My research project explores the viability of using blogging as a resilience intervention to help um, adolescents in developing countries boost their levels of resilience. I'm Dr. Jennifer McGowan, a lecturer at UCL and founder of the ROG. My research is on resilience in relation to health psychology. So I'm going to move on to our first question now. So this is quite a broad one and it could relate differently depending on your field. Uh, the first question is how might community level resilience relate to COVID? I'd like to kick off this first. Um, um, I would. Uh, it, it sounds a cliche, but at the heart of the community is the family. So I think um, it it has um, that the pandemic has demonstrated the value of of um, family um, during the lockdown. And I'd like to mention one research that, because I'm doing a lot of systematic review. And um, there's one research that I've come across. Um, it, this was published in July 2020 on um, on on PubMed. And um, this was published by, this was authored by Heather Prime and um, her colleagues. Um, she, she mentioned the value of the value of um, family dur during, during the pandemic, during the lockdown. And I think that we can also take this forward, um, you know, with other structures within, within the community, such as, you know, the, the government. Um, that's just what I'd like to um, emphasize at this point. Um I think what we've seen from the emerging research that's come out and then just kind of, you know, feeding back from different community groups is that a lot of the um, inequalities and structural factors and policies that um, support an individual's uh, or a family's life, uh, you know, that hasn't been equitably distributed um, over COVID. And there's already a lot that's been said about racial disparities, um, in particular in income-based disparities in how people, um, you know, w who got infected and how badly and what the outcomes were. Um, and I think that's a really important thing that really we have to wake up and say, um, that's not all right. Um, and that psychology has a lot to say about that. I think it, it, it did a lot to 
show that a lot of what maybe in popular understanding um, and even psychological practice is called an individual level of distress is actually really, really a lot about what the systems are around that person. And the minute those systems either go out the window because, for example, grandparents' support for children and childcare is not there, or um, you know things come up like refugees who don't have access to data, to phone data, can't get information about what the COVID secure practices are at the moment. Um, it's not just about individual responsibility and it's not just about individual susceptibility. Um, and so I think that's been a really important wake up call for, for everyone. And, you know, the flip side of that is that some communities really managed to respond relatively well to COVID. Um, I don't know that there's a, a relative, you know, what, what you call good or well, because it's still quite horrible and horrific for uh, across the board. But some communities did manage to put into practice mutual aid, were able to take care of really vulnerable people, were able to get, um, you know, overcome parts of digital exclusion, were able to get older people online or um, get, um, you know, other kind of resources available. Um, and certain health systems responded more effectively than others. Um, so I think it's important to have a look at at how that functioned and how that then, you know, in terms of individual right now, kind of what's what what things were like for people, but learn lessons from that about what we can do in society to help improve health health outcomes beyond this. What, what we've we've been studying and, and writing about for a while now is is uh, what we call a social organization approach to communities and all the rest. But one, one term that's interesting, and I think this maps on well to what Rebecca has already said, is we, we look at uh, community capacity. And in our view, it's, it's like a two-pronged concept. Uh, shared responsibility on the one hand and collective competence on, on the other hand. And uh, to Jennifer's point, we know that various communities are gonna score differently on the sense of shared responsibility that exists and, and their history of coming together and getting things done, that is collective uh, competence. Um, and, and the other piece that comes to mind is, is that uh, uh, I would like us to stop using the, the word community. I would rather, and I'd like us to stop using the word the family, the term the family. I would like us to say communities and I would like to say families because to me that reflects the enormous stratification that you find among families some, some able to do well in the face of adversity and others quickly into chaos. And I think the same holds true for, for communities. So that even within a land area, let's, uh, well, London being an example, enormous diversity in, in communities. And I think that's an important consideration when, when, when speaking to, you know, how, how well have, have communities done? Some reasonably okay, because they have a history of coming together and others have more of a history of, of difficulties in coming together. And so I think those are the two primary considerations. Thanks. Yes, I, I think I'd like to build on points that have already been made, but put a slightly different slant on it, because I think one of the 
I mean, I work in, in currently in India, Vietnam, um, Peru and Ethiopia, and two of those countries have been amongst the most affected, most dramatically adversely affected by COVID. And one of the things about families is that in those societies, people know they can't rely on their government. They can't rely on the formal systems. They are wholly reliant, really, on the informal mechanisms that exist within their communities and families. So that was the, the biggest irony of all, was that the announcement of lockdown, the announcement of the COVID crisis, led to huge, massive internal migrations. So many people who are working elsewhere, other than where their families are from, basically they knew that to survive they had to go home and so you had in in india and in peru particularly you had thousands and thousands if not millions in india of people walking hundreds of miles to get home to their families and communities where they knew the support systems were they knew they wouldn't the jobs were going to come to an end overnight in the cities and so on that in itself became a huge source of transmission of covid which is one of the most perverse and ironic features. I think it's very different in societies where people have formal employment, where you've been able to organize something at, at state level um, to provide welfare support and so on. Um, but in societies where people are used to having to rely on these informal mechanisms, they are actually long-term systems, as, as Rebecca is implying, that they're systems of social support without which individuals would not even imagine functioning. So they, they were activated. What, of course, is the crisis in many contexts in this particular um, situation is that so many of the people who became very sick and, and indeed those who died were elder generations, generations who might historically have been very crucial to survival in a crisis, crucial to maintaining the family and so on, were the precisely the ones who are sick. So uh, there's a lot of evidence of children taking up proto-adult roles. Um, so there's a generational shift that's, that's inevitably had to occur in, in maintaining these, these networks of support. Um, and actually, in other, in other crises, it's often the children who stand up to, to basically maintain you know, the household, they're, they're the ones who, are, who, who go out and earn income and so on. But it's also um, a kind of reversal of, of the normal sort of roles in society, which in itself can be quite disruptive to those long-term systems of support. I just want to add um, um, points to what Jay um, alluded to earlier about the, the function of, of the families and, and, the, and the communities. Um, also, we have to consider, you, you know, the, the structure, that the, the demographics of the family. Um, say, for instance, I'm originally from the Philippines, so I've experienced a lot of earthquakes. Um, on average, we would have a lot, about four earthquakes and 16 typhoons, and on top of that, we would have volcanic eruptions. So if you live in, in an ecosystem like that, um, having experienced a pandemic would be slightly more manageable compared to other families and to other communities. And also on top of that, um, we, we also have to consider, um, say for instance, um, Hong Kong, um, they have experienced SARS and, and also the Philippines. When I was a teenager, we've also experienced SARS. So 
um, even though we haven't experienced lockdown, because um, this is this is really um, new for for everyone else. Um, the kind of you, you know that the, the pandemic, the wearing of the mask, is kind of we have been prepared for that due to you know the nature of the environment that we've been exposed to. So I, I think that, um, um, that the, the kind of environment that we 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 grew up also affects how we will you know kind of demonstrate resilience um, whenever it's necessary. <laughs> Joe was talking about informal networks, uh, and I think it's worth having a little more conversation about that because the interesting thing to me is that um, we know how, how significant informal networks are. Uh, when, when, you know, when people face difficulty, they often prefer to turn to some aspect of the informal network rather than a formal, uh, formal system. Yet, so here we are in COVID, and we have all these rules about staying away from people. We have rules about staying away from family members. We, we have rules about staying away from the person next door. Uh, rules about staying away from people. At the same time that we know that, that a major piece of doing well in the face of adversity is connecting with, with, with people. Uh, we wrote some years ago this little phrase, it's hard to know who to turn to if you don't know who is there. So here we are in, in, in COVID and we're having, you know, the, the social network kind of muted, uh, you know, for example, at the same time, we know that's a, that's a key issue in doing well in the face of, of adversity. And so as Joe was talking, just reminded me of that, that it's not an oddity, but it, it's an interesting piece, I think, right now in terms of how, how do we respond well to, to COVID and separation? We know it's so important to be connected. Thank you for bringing that up, Jay, because it really speaks to a real affective, like a real emotional component of this um, and something that I think many people um, have struggled with so much. I mean, like a lot, my research is about relationships and it's it, thinking about how you live through that where, as you said, the instinct is to turn towards others and that's generally adaptive and yet carrying with you that knowledge that in doing that you might um, bring disease onto somebody else or, or receive that. It's been a real challenge and, and yet as, um, as Dennis has said, aspects of the pandemic or of the lived experience of that, there have been lessons to be learned from different communities and one thing I think it, that this has brought forward is that they're, they're, we do so much better when we can learn from each other about that and not fall into kind of silos of expertise or policy, but that when you open up and to see well, what are the commonalities of experiences um, across different situations, what can I learn from a family community group that is different from my own, that's really important. And I was really struck what Joe said um, in comparing the different different countries. Um, I myself am, am both British and American um, and it's been very challenging seeing the different institutional kind of policy level responses to that. I think it's appropriate to kind of bring bring oneself into this. Um, that there is a challenge, you know, that, that the, the sometimes I think in research and in policy, the, there's a tension between centering the family and centering those community-based relationships 
and having institutional support for those things. And I think one thing that has come out and that is bearing through the research that is that people have done about COVID responses is that if you have a family and communities centered society, but you do not have institutional support for that, there's still failures. And that similarly expecting um, support external to those groups leaves a person really vulnerable. If you don't have a family or your family is not a healthy ecosystem for you, or if your community is really quite marginalized and lacks a lot of basic resources, then there may not be that supportive support for you and there may not be any kind of resources for you. And that creates a lot of disparities um, that again are really not down to the individual um, but have so much impact on that individual. And so I'm just really struck by how um, it seems like there needs to be a combination of acknowledging, really celebrating the, um, the importance of family and community relationships, but also saying that those things don't survive in and of themselves. They'll be strengthened through what they've what people have gone through and people develop, you know, and families and communities develop histories and practices and resources that come, come to the fore when things are really hard. But if there's no institutional support for that, if frankly, if there's no money to support that, then it still leaves people really vulnerable. Thank you. And um, one thing I'd just like to, to clarify because people listening may or may not be uh, psychologists themselves. So we've been looking at community level resilience here from quite a few different um, directions from down to family all the way up to, to country level. Is how would you define community level when it comes to resilience? Uh, I'm going to have to repeat myself, which it's what I do. Um, I really think part, part of that answer, Jennifer, is again that this notion of what degree of shared responsibility is in a neighborhood, a community, a city, a town? And, and what is their history and their capacity to get things done? Um, whether, whether it's doing things because of adversity or whether it's just doing things because communities need to have certain things done. A friend of mine talked about the fact that uh, certain communities um, that he, the he she, she knew about, um, they, they built a community playground not because there was adversity, but the community wanted to come together and do something for children that was really important in a certain set of neighborhoods that was not there before. So I, so I think that whole business of getting things done is part of that, what is, what is community resilience, aside from sort of the sentiment that, am I responsible for the people around me or, or, or am I not? Yes, I would, I would like to reflect further on that, I think. From my perspective, community um, is really just about meaningful next, meaningful mo modes of organisation. So it, it might literally be a physical community, a particular village or uh, neighbourhood, but it's often not. It's often, you know, networks increasingly, in fact, it's networks that people forge across the internet, which are not 
connected to a particular location. But it'll, I think this issue of, of shared responsibility, shared sense of, of common interests and so on is absolutely fundamental to resilience. And we've seen, I think in, in cases of armed conflict, for example, one of the most powerful things you can do to rebuild um, individual and group resilience is to reinstate the structures, the, the, the organizational processes that people value. For example, schools, sometimes in, in a war zone where absolutely everything has been obliterated, getting children back to school, whether it's in an actual school or if the school's been destroyed, it'll be under a tree or whatever it is. But that's when adults kind of coalesce, convene together. They've got something to rebuild, something to think about the future, something that gives them a sense of, um, you know, working towards um, a future for their community and for the children in their community. To me, that's that's really a sense of community, and it might, it's not necessarily neighbourhood organisations in the traditional sense, but it's really where people feel they have meaningful relationships and where they can act together to do something, and that doing something, having a regular routine, having a purpose, having a sense of future, is absolutely fundamental to rebuilding resilience in in you know in areas that have been decimated by severe crises. Yes, um, excellent points made. I, I think I would would only add that that yes, some of the um, uh, you know recognizing community. I don't think uh, as as uh, Joe said, it doesn't have to be um, geographically based. It can be about shared cultural identity or other forms of identity, um, and that it's I think about connection and being able to see commonality. Um, and, and, and I think it's interesting that you brought up about rebuilding schools. I think um, that there is an intergenerational aspect to this, or certainly that um, even though a community might be quite homogenous in some way, that there is a sense of how that community respect, uh, relates to other communities and, and acknowledging a diversity within that community um, and making those connections. So this is part of culture, isn't it? Is that your cultural traditions and your family traditions get passed down in certain ways, whether that's family of origin or biological family units or kind of, you know, found family, chosen family. Um, but there's something in that too. And, and I think maybe a healthy community um, is also one that is responsive to the needs of that community. Um, and again, that uh, there's, or at least aims to be responsive to that the needs of that community because it might be that they can't respond in a particular way particularly if it's a matter of resources um but there's an aim to be responsive and to listen to that um i think i think that's kind of something for me that um i would would value Yes, I just want to cite my research project as an example of, you know, the kind of nebulous concept um, in, in relation to community, as what Joe said, um, it doesn't have to be geographical, but sometimes it could also be digital. Um, my research project actually aims to explore whether we can use a digital community such as blogging in order to um, promote resilience. And that comes from my own experience as, as a blogger. Because um, I have my, my blogging community, my, 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 my family, um, all of them are in the Philippines. I'm, 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 I'm British Filipino, but um, most, most of my family here uh, are just because of my husband. So I would always have to reconnect with my family in the Philippines as like my family family. <laughs> um, but 
um, the, the plugin community also serves as a, as a family to me, because even before um, the pandemic, we would have like um, monthly meetings, but all of that has been converted into, you know, online platforms. And I, I think they, they, ser they serve um, as, as a family for me, because we have shared interests about online contents. We also have a shared value about what we, what we want to publish. Um, I'm just citing an example um, to, to further emphasize Joe and Rebecca's point that it doesn't really have to be, you know, a geographical tangible community, but it just have to have like, you know, shared um, values, um, like what I've said. Yeah, just expanding on that. Um, when I first started doing research into friendship, people would ask me, well, do online friendships count? Um, or how, how, good of, how good is a friendship? Uh, how often do you have to see each other? You know, if I'm, if, if I'm interested in the qualities of friendship. So how often do you have to see each other? to make that a good friend? How often do you have to speak to each other? Um, what is it that you have to do together? And I was always always kind of coming back to the idea that it's about what's meaningful and um, and feasible for both, uh, both parties. And this experience as well, the shared collective experience has shown us that, um, that there is a lot of community and relationality to be had. Um, even if you can't um, be together um, at the same time that people still struggle with the absence of that physical, you know, shared space. Um, I don't, uh, you know, as much as, um, you know, digital life has enabled people to connect over the pandemic when that's been available to them, because not everybody has had that experience. Um, it's also kind of shown that there really is, you know, something very special about being in the presence of each other um uh in in whatever way so aiming to have something that is what can what can happen when it needs to happen what is going to be meaningful to people and yes as dennis has said that in general it's not for people outside the community to def define what a community is people within the community are best place i think to to recognize what is a community and what defines the strengths of that community. Now, th this is really interesting. I, I, uh, I'm learning a great deal from my colleagues here. One piece that comes to mind is from a couple of researchers who've been around a long time out in, in Iowa. Uh, uh, Carolyn Cutrona is, is one. And I mentioned Carolyn's work because she talks about what are the various functions of relationships. And, and she and her husband, Dan Russell, talk about six of them. And I would like to say I can remember all six, but I, I really can't. Uh, but one is social integration. One is reliable alliance. One is opportunity for nurturance and three others. And so as, as we talk about, you know, um, relating mainly in a remote way or an electronic way, as opposed to an elbow to elbow way. For me, it raises the question, well, are there particular relationship functions that are better served by, by certain ways of, of being with others? Um, and are there certain functions that quite honestly, uh, a whole range of, of modalities uh, serve uh, really, really well? Um, so, so that, that's kind of what's running through my mind uh, right now. So it, to, to Dennis's, uh, I think his dissertation research, I, I, I think, um, the, the blogging business probably maps on quite effectively to certain functions of relationships 
and maybe differently in terms of other functions. Again, it, it's kind of an empirical question. I'm just kind of raise, raising that. But, but I think this is a, a core area in terms of the, the business of resilience. What does it take to, to bring us to a certain level of doing well with that ad, adversity? And what it takes might be very different than what we've thought in, in the past, and particularly in, in the electronic you know, age that we're in right now. Yeah, just to add a very quick point to, to Jay's um, about the different aspects of relationships that one might consider to be particularly important for the, the support of resilience. And it reminded me of Emmy Werner's work in Hawaii, where she, her longitudinal study, which was, I think, 55 years in, in total, following this, the, the same um, community of individuals. And the single most prominent feature of resilience, those who came out of those 55 years with lots of different you know, challenges that they faced across their life, but the single most important um, feature of resilience in terms of the supports that they were getting from elsewhere was was mentoring, a, a mentor in their lives, whether it be a peer, whether it was a an older person, that wasn't the, that wasn't actually the important feature. The feature was somebody who believed in you, somebody who had confidence in you, who who wanted to be nurturing you, and that was the single most important feature of, of resilience in the long term for 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 people. And I think that's a very powerful um, statement of the power, the, the importance, the centrality of of certain types of relationships and certain features of relationships. Yes, and, and building on that, um, I think, uh, you know, from what uh, Jay and, and Joe have just both spoken to, um, there, there's roles for different kinds of relationships. And I think when we think about promoting good relationships, um, perhaps there's a tendency to focus on the most emotionally close ones. Um, so best friendships, romantic partnerships, um, uh, nuclear family relationships. But community also involves meaningful, more peripheral community uh, relationships. Um, and that, again, is in terms of community resilience and the experience of going through COVID, um, uh, that, that that has been something that I think um, has been under strain, that um, there's been, you know, emphasis on bubbles or, or you know, wherever you've been, you've had a particular, uh, you know, um, uh, experience of being, uh, you know, kind of having your social circle uh, uh, made smaller, right? But actually, as um, we do exist in a constellation of relationships where there is less emotional closeness, there's more intermittent, um, you know, kind of uh, communication, and those are still really valuable. So in education research, there's uh, theories around communities of practice where people come together to learn something and there's kind of focused attention on learning a specific thing um, but, but there's acknowledgement that not everybody is going to be what might typically be understood as a leader um, some people play more central roles and some people play the roles of observer right some people play facilitating roles where they connect people um, across different relationships and kind of facilitate things to happen and I think that's still, you know, in terms of a healthy community um, and a resilient community, there's those levels of, you know, kind of relationship and interaction as well. And when you look at research around who particularly benefits and really engages with online um, 
uh, friendships, and Dennis, I'm sure, can speak to this uh, as well, probably better than me, is that often if you're a member of a more marginalized community, so if you are LGBTQIA plus in an area that that's not really, you know, not that that's not welcome, for example, um, having an online out, outlet is really helpful for making connections with other people and it can you know help you get some of that like visibility and validation but also facilitate closeness when that might not be available to you and it again just makes me think about yeah that mentoring having like a relationship is so important um so yeah just to kind of highlight that when we talk about community we're talking about a whole lot of different kinds of relationships I wanted to cast my vote for Rebecca's point uh, about loose ties. Uh, that's kind of the term she was describing. Uh, I think very often she, we overlook those. And, and, and those loose ties, it may be the barista at, at our local coffee shop, or it could, it, there's no telling who that could be, um, who's not a relative and you know who we don't talk to a whole lot, but for some reason they help us organize our day and make sense of what we're doing. So, and, and that, so that's an important piece, I think, that, that Rebecca brought up. I just wanted to vote for that as well. Thank you. Thank you very much, everyone. So it is a really interesting discussion and I am quite sad to have to cut that one short, but just moving back um, towards community resilience and COVID, which is, is the aim of this current podcast. So I'd like to go into a little bit more detail in um, what you yourselves have found out in the research in either your own research or research that you've read over COVID, how you think um, community level resilience has impacted on COVID. So how have they related to each other? Just ever so briefly, I've been amazed at the number of, of people in communities that, that have uh, mobilized um, uh, with, with formal systems uh, to uh, get people to get their vaccination. Um, now, in the U.S., you probably know by this time, it, it is pretty much stalled, is the truth of it. Uh, I guess those who were going to get vaccinated are vaccinated, and quite a number of people uh, are, are not for, for a host of reasons. But nevertheless, there have been a lot of community groups that have come together to, to really get, get the word out and as sort of the accurate information on what a vaccination does and, and put it in context that... Uh, with its even with its drawbacks, whatever they may be, we have clear data on what happens with COVID, uh, and and so I think that's one way that communities have really risen to the whole COVID uh, issue. Kind of that, what do we do from a public health perspective? Um, I, I think we we also need to acknowledge that sometimes community could also be a source of. Um, resilience, um, especially in relation to COVID-19, just like what Jay said, that it could prompt us to get vaccinated and to, you know, follow social distancing um, because we're kind of being encouraged by a community. But we also have to understand that sometimes community could also be a source of risk. Um, um, so, say, for instance, um, I don't know if you've heard of a website called Gab. Um, it's an alternative to Twitter, gab.com. And if you go to um, this website, there would be a lot of people encouraging, um, so to speak, their community not to take um, the vaccine because, um, um, because according to them, COVID is allegedly a fictitious virus. So I, I think that's an example of, you know, how, how a particular community could also be a source, could also pose as a risk. 
And um, I, I just want to tie it into some of the readings that I've done recently. Um, this, this might not be related to COVID-19, but it's just, um, I suppose this is also a demonstration that um, sometimes community could pose as a barrier for us to, you know, to developing resilience. I was reading this um, a study by two Indian researchers last night, Anam Khan and um, Amrita Deb. Um, in, in their paper, they argue that um, in India, families could sometimes be a source of, of risk. In particular, they, they mentioned three factors. They said um, the gender-based discrimination, which is embedded within the Indian um, um, family, the hierarchy of authoritarianism, and um, the, the suppression of independent thought. So these things, um, whether be it COVID-related or, or, or not, they could arguably, you know, contribute to how we would, you know, um, interact and supposedly do what the government is telling us. So I wanted to speak from personal experience rather than on the basis of research and just to say that during lockdown um, where we were living in a in a, um, a small village I was astonished by the level of mobilization all of which took place because people were not able to meet up with each other individually um, which took place on so through social media basically but the the village divided itself into cells and um, in each case there was a, a cell leader who, who took responsibility for making sure that everybody in that cell was both informed informed about the, the level of risk informed about policy but also informed as Jay says about vaccination and the different research findings on vaccination you know what are the risks what you know what, what are the benefits of of the vaccinations and so on vaccines but they were also supplying um doing cooking for people who were unable to care for themselves who didn't have the means to to cook for themselves i mean just basically the whole village got taken over it ended up with people um, when there was a shortage of ppe for the hospitals locally um then the uh, one of the people in the village was is um from working in one of the ho hospitals locally distributed um, patterns for PPEs and everybody was making PPE equipment in their homes and so uh, according to the to the designated requirements the sort of standards required by the NHS so it's really just by way of saying that the internet was essential for it not everybody has access to the internet but we were all aware of the people who didn't and what kinds of support they would need there were alerts issued if people were in trouble um, and it, it just basically flourished as a as a network which does still continue but that's one of the interesting things about a lot of these informal mobilization efforts they don't necessarily outlive the crisis or in in this case in the uk the crisis has not passed but it's somewhat less acute than it was and it's really interesting how people settle back into a different mode with each other once the immediate crisis is over what what i think is what people do take from it is a sense of the mutuality of these support systems that does carry on even if they're not as active as they were during the actual you know the worst stages of, of the pandemic yes yeah, so many interesting points there i'm i'm thinking about the a lot of work coming out uh, of um the lab of John Drury, he's based at Sussex, and so I'm going to attempt to try to speak about his work. Um, so apologies if I get that wrong. But, um, you know, he, he and his colleagues do a lot of work about collective social identities and pushing back about the idea that, um, 
you know, that, that in a time of crisis that we tend to revert to individualism and uh, withholding of resources and, and saying, you know, the, the research that um, he and his colleagues and a lot of the people who, who do work in this area, um, like Chris Cocking and, and, and what they've said and shown is that um, in times of crisis that a collective shared identity can emerge kind of that's based around that crisis where all of a sudden we're not just people living in a village, we're people living in that village going through this together. And so let's take care of our own. Um, but also that we do, you know, we do have tendencies towards collective behavior and that, um, you know, it's, you know, it's not unnatural to have that and it's not unnatural for that to go outside of the family unit as a target. And I think that we've seen a lot of that um, over COVID and that's been really important, um, both to the direct kind of vaccine take up and, and outcomes and such, but also in thinking about like kind of long-term recovery and support. Um, and I'm thinking about, you know, a lot of communities that already had mutual aid traditions, whether those are geographic communities or cultural communities, such as refugee communities, where because there's a lot of barriers to accessing kind of any resources, people are already kind of taking care of each other. There's already like a lot of food exchange, etc. Um, that's already there. So in some ways that was strength, but in other ways, this maybe comes back to the idea that there are families and communities, right? Um, the most marginalized became even more marginalized. Um, and whether that's individuals um, or groups. So again, refugees, um, Anne Douglas has done a lot of work within the British Psychology Society Working Group on Community Action and Resilience. She did a lot of work working with um, uh, voices and organization that for kind of um, advocates for and within refugee communities, talking about the barriers that they were facing at that time over COVID that, you know, like they didn't know about wh where to go to get food, they couldn't access information about what was happening locally because um, not allowed a television in the accommodation, right? Uh, 30 pounds a week for everything, how do you afford data? Or what if your phone breaks, etc. cetera. Um, but even kind of increasing vulnerabilities within seemingly well-to-do communities, um, that if somebody's a single parent or a parent of a child with um, additional needs, that if that support is then withdrawn, you know, what happens? Um, that, you know, there's, there's a lot of in, increased vulnerability there. Um, and there's some suggestions that those kind of, you know, what Joe talked about, new, new geographically based mutual aid organizations, right? Things that came up like your WhatsApp, you know, I was in one too, WhatsApp group for your street sort of thing, who needs something? And people would put up posters again, yeah, like posters, if you're not online, this is happening. Um, but the, the people who could do that were often the people who had a little bit of money and resources um, and people who traditionally had more access to power based on racial identities, gender identities, economic histories. Um, and maybe they just lost their jobs so they had a lot of time, but it's kind of coming out from that. And, and I thought it's very curious, you know, you said what happens when the crisis has passed, that, you know, some things will change, but then 
do we fall back into habits? And if we're looking at resilient communities, maybe there's resilience to the crisis, but what about the next time there's a crisis? Or what about this long-term where things aren't as they used to be and maybe never will be? So is there still resilience there if we're falling back into old things? Actually, what Joe and Rebecca said um, about how, you know, um, the, the COVID-19 and the pandemic kind of um, shaped their interaction with the community um, made me remember how I actually behaved during, during um, and the, the, um, the lockdown. Because before the lockdown, um, I know my neighbors by name, but I don't really talk to them. And I think I'm, I'm not unique in that respect because um, <laughs> I just noticed here in Britain, people do not usually talk um, with their neighbors. Um, it might be a AC generalization, but anyway, um, I've been living here for quite uh, seven years now, eight years. I don't speak to my neighbors. But during, um, I think it was January of last year, um, there was a um, club for the NHS. I think that was the very first time that I kind of um, spoken to my neighbors. Um, you know, we just have a chit chat about how the lockdown and how, how it is affecting us. And I just, you know, learned from my neighbors that actually they, they lost their jobs. And, and so that kind of, and also it also trick, I, I work from home, so lockdown has really um, did not impact me, but my husband, because he works in the travel industry, it has impacted me. So it kind of, you know, the, the lockdown, it, it made you realize that you are really interconnected as what Jay said earlier. And that becomes a source of, you know, resilience. How can we, you know, how can we move forward as a community in, in, in order to, you know, um, just, just resume our, our normal lives before the lockdown? I just, I want to pick up on something that um, Re Rebecca was saying. I, I mean, the thing that, so Dennis started out by pointing out in the Philippines that already been an experience of SARS. And I think that history is absolutely vital in terms of building on it and so on. And I have to say that I'm really worried. I mean, in the UK, we were very poorly prepared. The government was very poorly prepared. A lot of the structures and systems that one would normally expect to be able to rely on had already been decimated. Um, and were underfunded and, and so on. And there's been a lot of um, discussion, but not yet much systematic research on why it should be that some societies, some communities have fared so much better than others. It's not just about access to resources. That clearly is an important factor, but it's the feeling that if after this is passed, at least the, it's not gonna pass, it's not, you know, COVID is here to stay, but the, the immediate crisis will probably pass in different countries at different times. What will we have learned in terms of prevention and building resilience for the future, including what do communities and families expect and need most from their governments to provide um, the sort of supports that they're going to need into the future? Because I think it's, it was, it's been kind of shown that the, the societies that have experienced SARS were better prepared. They went into a sort of emergency mode far more quickly than those of those countries and societies that didn't have the prior experience. And I think, I just wonder what happens next. And I wonder whether one of the things that communities now need to be doing is applying pressure on their governments to be thinking into the future, because we all know, well, we knew before actually that this was gonna happen. It's been predicted 
um, already by the, the health community for a very long time that we would have a pandemic. There will be future pandemics and with globalization and the amount of travel, there'll be many more too. So what I think communities need to be doing is taking their experience, saying what it was that strengthened them, what it was their needs were during this crisis and what would they need going forward and what would they need to be done better in order to be resilient and be preventative rather than just reactive, which is how it felt um, that we were at least in, in, in the UK. Thank you. And before I move on to Rebecca, Joe, can I just ask, since you uh, do have data from different countries, can you give any examples of uh, country specific factors that have impacted community resilience response to COVID? Well, Vietnam was hugely better prepared than um, the other countries in the Young Lives study. Um, the, the, the tragedy for Peru was that actually the government acted very quickly, far, far more quickly than the UK government, for example. They introduced a, a very strict lockdown, but they didn't take into account the fact that in, in a society where so many people live off informal incomes, they're going to lose their jobs overnight. They cannot stay so that, I mean, they, they couldn't stop people from working. That was the problem. So there weren't the economic systems in place. Vietnam, um, having already had some experience of SARS, was at all levels much better. Containment and control, community messaging, there's a lot more um, effort to, to take government policy down to, to community level in, in a country like, like Vietnam. Um, and I think those are the sort of factors. So the policies were in place, the health policies, the economic policies, but also informing people. And, and actually, people were very compliant in Vietnam because they knew what the cost of not being compliant was, was about. And I think in some countries where the full nature of this um, disease was not understood, people didn't feel the need to follow. They didn't have the trust in their governments in many cases. Um, and in a country like India, for example, where you had a where you had a government that was denying the, the seriousness of this disease, what hope have you got? What what if there's no messaging on how to stay safe, how to be distanced, and so on? That means that communities from the very get-go really don't don't have the, the means to to you know prevent transmission of the disease. It's just heartbreaking hearing that, to be honest. It really, really is. Um, and makes me think so much about um, uh, the, the editor of uh, the BMJ, the British Medical, Medical Journal, wrote a little op-ed um, saying, this is not a pandemic, this is a syndemic, which was a term that, term that I had not heard before. Um, but what it means is, if I recall correctly, is that um, it's a pandemic that affects people differently because of purely social factors. And again, it's, it's interesting trying to think back to what was it, a year ago, 15 months ago, time is a real blur. Um, when we were really thinking about like, what is this? How does this spread? What is this? And, you know, when we started to see disparities in um, deaths and in um, outcomes, like why, right? Um, and this is the, and, and the idea is that actually some of the reasons why um, you know, black and ethnic minority people have suffered more in, um, you know, in, in Western countries is because it's not genetics um, or not primarily genetics. It's because of systemic structural racism 
um, that already affected things like what jobs are available, job security, um, you know, ability to access care and intergenerational care, um, all sorts of things. That it's it, you know, it's not just a matter of cellular biology or you know viral transmission. That we are um, meeting this through the social systems that we've collectively created, um, and. That I think is, you know, like I've been listening to myself as I'm talking and I'm saying, I'm saying as I, as I speak, am I think, am I being too political? But I think what, um, what is shown and what has been shown is that politics in terms of like the things we choose to do collectively, that really does affect health and well-being, that you cannot divorce health and well-being from politics and it comes into play with a lot of the things that everyone's already said including things like do we trust our institutions do we trust the guidance can they be responsive do they know the needs of the people that they are serving and also do they recognize um you know the sub-communities and diversities within um within countries i'm also struck that how you know, we, in as much as we can also learn from countries um, like Hong Kong, uh, you know, in regions where there was already that institutional knowledge, right, and it's played out in terms of having much better health outcomes. Um, you know, there's also with, within countries and within families and communities, we are connected to each other. And that's come into play in terms of, you know, people, people's distress as they're watching what's happening in their home country. You know, if you're Brazilian, you're looking at what's happened and you, you know, things might be calming down locally, but you know what's going on back home, right? We are not, um, as individuals and communities, we are not based within our borders. We have all of this happening outside. Um, and separately, I wanted to think about, um, we talked earlier about how communities aren't just geographically based. And if we're thinking about collective resilience, community resilience, there's also another institution that we haven't talked about. We've talked about governments, but we haven't talked about institutions around healthcare and health research. And one thing that really came out from this was how quickly, when the will was there, and when we changed systems of healthcare research, health research, how quickly we could get a vaccine developed, an effective vaccine, a few effective vaccines and how quickly we could get that rolled out. And it required, you know, moving things along in terms of um, how quickly approvals happened. It required working together and sharing data and kind of dissolving some of the boundaries between public and private healthcare research. It required international cooperation and it's not happened per perfectly. But it's, it did show that when we have urgent healthcare problems, if we really want to, things can be different. And that is also a form of community where if we, maybe we want to say that that is a model that is, um, you know, really important and could be um, developed further. Um, and, and also kind of showing that that also had a lot of it raised, it raised a lot of discomfort for some people where there was distrust of that process. And as Jay mentioned earlier, people, you know, that there's been a stalling um, in the vaccination rollout amongst certain communities. Um, you know, 
I don't think that the community of health research really understood uh, the implications of that, uh, that fast rollout for, for you know, um, how that might be received. And it shows something as well about how in certain communities and countries, how that, um, what people's understanding is of that process. And um, trust came up in our last podcast too. It was found that um, trust in the, in the government and in the institution to be able to support people had a huge impact on, on personal well-being over COVID as well. So thank you for um, building on that point. And in terms of healthcare workers, we haven't talked about them much yet, but there will be a Health and Resilience podcast coming up soon and we would definitely go into it then. Thank you. Somewhere along the line, someone talked about um, will we learn anything to, to carry, carry forward? Which is an interesting question because the, the notion of human development as people and systems and all of that, so we learn something. And then we learn it and we can apply it in the future. Well, I was thinking about 2005, Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans and that, that part of the Southern United States. And nobody knew what to do in the face of such a massive event. I mean, it's it just stunning. And sort of not knowing what to do, persisted and persisted and persisted. So we fast forward to a year and a half ago, a, a different catastrophe, certainly. And again, I look at my own government and I said, well, apparently nobody learned anything uh, about how to mobilize support for individuals, families, and communities. Now at the time, that is from, from 2016 to, to 2020, we had an enormously corrupt government, right? And it's gonna take us maybe until the end of time to overcome the corruptness during the Trump administration. But we were lied to on a daily basis. And because of the lie, things didn't happen. Now, to Rebecca's point, uh, an intervention was developed because luckily scientists have been dealing with this uh, uh, gene editing for a while. And they said, aha, let's, let's, just, let's just roll on with, with this. Um, but at the same time, our U.S. government's denying that it's an issue. And so nothing was happening, though this wonderful set of, of uh, you know, interventions was being, um, being developed. Uh, and so, so the, the matter of what have we learned, you know, you and I can learn a lot and our neighborhoods can learn a lot, but governments apparently aren't good learners. At least that's been the case in in the in the United States, and as you as you know, things are so politicized uh, any, anymore that that really rules the day. Rather than, for example, what's the public health of people who live in America? That sounds a little political. I don't care. Okay, uh, and building on that, uh, to our our last main question for today is uh, how can we support community resilience over COVID and moving on? So I'd like to start with a question asked um, specifically by one of our panel members, which is how can psychologists support community leaders right now? Um, I'd say a fantastic question, except I think I might've written it, but <laughs> um, part of some of the work that I did over, um, over lockdown um, 
this was probably while working with a with a um a, a, a toddler's feeding chair next to me which just wants you know just to say that we we are all subject to what we've been living through um was working uh with a faith community leader and um she was quite powerful in saying you know she's been doing what you'd call mutual aid work for a long time like you know kind of supporting people to meet basic needs and being in connection with very vulnerable members of her community and you know you build up a level of um resilience to that of you know you experiencing a lot of loss and distress on a daily basis but what she really spoke to was saying that we've never had that for to such an extent over such a long time and particularly volunteers who came in, you know, all super enthusiastic about helping reach a point, a wall where all of a sudden the, the you know, sheer devastation that they're facing gets to them. And people who work in the humanitarian sectors and climate change and disaster relief sectors are aware of the kind of burnout around this and first, first responders as well, um, you know, they've They've got a lot of support systems in place, even though I think at this point, quite a lot of them as well are really um, struggling. Um, I think a lot of psychologists can say, who's doing the work? Who's doing this informal work? Even if it's stopped, who has been doing it? Do they need a hand? Do they need a listen? Do they need a, a support structure? Um, who's taking care of the people who've been taking care? Because it's been quite relentless work and to, to a degree that hasn't really been seen um, and has been so pervasive because, you know, um, Jay earlier mentioned about um, what happened after Hurricane Katrina. And I remember reading some research around that, which I can't cite because it's been so long ago, but they said one of the main things that supported communities from that was maintaining contact with other members of their family and communities. And when there was separation, that was really hard, right? We've been through that. We've been through dislocation, as Joe mentioned as well, where there's been internal dislocation. Um, so who's doing the work, going to them and asking, what can I do in terms of maybe that's grief support. Maybe that's something that looks like counseling. Maybe it's about using your expertise and access to advocate for changes in policy or to set up a service, whatever it is, but going and asking, right? Because I, I guess, you know, for me, the answer to the question, how do you support community leaders? There's going to be so many different ways. Go and ask. Yes, uh, I just want to echo what Rebecca ha has already said. And um, we, we have seen during the pandemic, during, during the lockdown, that a wealth of psychological research has been published. And I think this is already, um, we, we, we have a responsibility as psychologists, as researchers, to actually come up with more you know, viable interventions and how we could actually help um, those who have been um, affected by um, the lockdown, by the pandemic, um, especially the uh, the adolescents. You know, um, I, I can't imagine it when, when, when I was like, let's say 15 or 18 year old, I can't imagine being locked down at home and not being able to see my friends. And so I think um, that's one of the things that we have to focus on as, re as researcher. And I just want to tie it in again to my work. Um, there are other resilience researchers who are exploring ways on how we could actually benefit um, adolescents and young, um, how could adolescents and young people benefit from, 
re resilience intervention, especially in relation to what they have experienced um, during the pandemic. I think another area of opportunity that um, psychologists could also address is how conspiracy theory impacts decision-making, not just in a personal level, but also in a community level. So um, as a psychologist, as a researcher, um, these are areas that um, I'm, I'm hopeful that we could finally find some you know, tangible solutions. Yes, and thinking about, you know, kind of the, the breadth of interventionists, and that would include psychologists, it would include, include educators, it would include family therapists, um, social workers, etc. So there's a large collection in most communities of interventionists. And it seems to me a couple things come to mind. A lot of the issues surrounding, uh, I think, this pandemic uh, funnel into uh, loss. People feel a sense of loss for a variety of reasons. I mean, it could be something enormously concrete, like I lost my job. It could be a sense of the loss of freedom. It could be the loss of a relative uh, who's either disabled because of it or, or who died. So I think that interventionists, because uh, almost all interventionists are, are trained in the business of what do you do in the face of loss? So that would be one focus that I think interventionists could, uh, could take. Um, the second, I think, is that... Um, the, the matter of how to make effective decisions is also an area where a lot of times we need we need some help. H how do you? Uh, what should be the the personal algorithm for making the right kind of decision about my health and the health of my family? The whole business of you know should I should I stay distant from people? Should I take a vaccine? And I think that is something also that interventionists can be very helpful with in helping people sort of plow through all the all the stuff, including, Dennis, uh, conspiracy thinking. Uh, I will tell you, I have a neighbor who was convinced that the vaccine was going to have some kind of microchip connected to it that would enable others to control her life. This, this is a rational person otherwise with, with, I think, a very irrational way of thinking. So I think decision-making is, 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 is the second. The third I want to mention is, is the work of our colleague, um, uh, Ann Maston, uh, who is at Still University of Minnesota, and she writes about ordinary magic. And she wrote about it a bunch of years ago and then put out a book on it. Uh, I, I think, not putting too many words in, in Maston's you know, mouth right now, uh, she would say that, that part and parcel of being human is this capacity to do well in the face of adversity. And so she calls it ordinary on the one hand, but magical on the other hand that as humans and as collectives, we can deal with some really disastrous kinds of stuff. So I think, again, a role interventionists can play is say, well, all right, let, let's, let's, if we assume that on average, we have this ordinary magic to do well in the face of adversity, then as an interventionist, how do I, in fact, increase the odds that that ordinary magic is mobilized in a person's life or in a community's life? adding to all the wonderful things that have been said um, I think also that there's a use for a psychologist to input into um, uh, schools specifically um, we've talked about the importance of returning to school for children um, when that's possible um, and you know there's a lot of tensions around what the priorities should be in that and there's a group of developmental psychologists here in the UK who've specifically been advocating saying that you know yes there's been a lot of academic um, 
interruptions and losses. But that really, if we're kind of to um, to to heal and to recover, what children specifically need, but probably all of us is to attend more to emotional and social development right now um, through play, through relationships, um, through getting support from, from uh, teachers, etc. And then, and, and so kind of taking the pressure off of those things and really acknowledging um, what's happened and allowing people to kind of children specifically to process that in their way which is really like through play and with their friends i think that's a very important message and because psychologists are very well placed to understand how social and emotional health impacts so many different outcomes including academic outcomes i think we're in a very good place to be able to say that yes i i, I just want to quickly add to to what rebecca said that i think what covid 19 and you know um, the lockdown and and be it related to resilience or not, it has underpinned the importance of science communication, um, especially to to adolescents. That um, the information that you just you know get online, um, you have you have to challenge it with um, empirical and robust evidence from from academics, um, be it social scientists or or people from from the health field. Um, I think um, just to add to my point earlier, that it's really important that, you know, we rely on robust information and that 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 lies to us as, as scientists. And uh, I'm going to ask a, a slightly different question, but along the same theme now, which is um, what do you think the personal and professional challenges have been facing community leaders and volunteers in their long term response to COVID? Um, I think long-term volunteers and community leaders, they've, um, you know, they've been facing a relentless um, and ever-changing situation in which they've had to make key decisions. Um, they've had to form relationships. Um, they've experienced and witnessed a lot of grief. Um, they've been kind of trying to develop and uh, implement best practice around a situation that really few people have encountered before, even if, um, you know, there've been specific countries that haven't incorporated that, but perhaps that, that learning wasn't accessible to whatever the, the community in, in question was, you know, that learning hasn't been disseminated really about how a particular country got through SARS, right? Um, so I think personally, um, community leaders and volunteers, they've been experiencing much of the same things as the people they've been supporting. Right. Maybe they have more or less privileges or a different kind of level of expertise built up around that. But they've been doing that and they've been doing that often without much break and um, not wanting to take a break as well. Um, so, you know, if you speak to a healthcare worker, even if they know that they should take a break, they don't want to because there's, you know, a need. Right. A need that's being fulfilled. Um, and I, I think that, um, you know, just overall, it's just been a, a lot um, and trying to gain resources and advocacy where the where there's a lot of calls being made to support people um, and trying to gain access to government uh, to make policies and release funding that could support people, I think has been a real, real challenge to them. 
Rebecca just made the point about these same leaders and healthcare providers. They're also experiencing the things, same things that others are trying to help. And I think that's an important, important piece. I want to add to that, and, and, and again, I don't know if this is more particular to the U.S. or not, but I'm, I'm going to say it in, anyway. Um, there have been cases where uh, local leadership, say I, I live in Athens, Georgia, which is uh, home of the University of Georgia. Uh, and frankly, it's unlike most of the rest of Georgia because of the university's presence. Nevertheless, um, leadership in Athens wanted to do certain things with regard to the pandemic response. And they were overruled by state government. And what the leaders in Athens wanted to do, I saw as more responsible. They wanted to uh, close down businesses more. They wanted to, to kind of restructure so that uh, people wouldn't be in each other's face so much and all of that. And they were prevented from doing so because of state government saying, no, you can't, you can't do that. So, so part of the leadership struggle is that very often there's, there's some system above you which says, well, no, you can't do this. That, that's against a statute or a law or, or what have you. The other piece that I think they've been dealing with is that there, there have been enormously competing ideas on even the nature of, of the pandemic. Um, uh, there's the, there's the, uh, you know, the radical conspiracy thinking, which gets really wacky, but there's also other beliefs that have been in place for a long time, for example, on the merits of a vaccine, any vaccine, for any reason. And so that, that's been in, in, in the air for, you know, forever. Uh, as as well, and that's part of the context that leaders have had to uh, to deal with. Um, and then the the other piece is is that um, there's been a host of solutions uh, posed over the course of of this, and the solutions have changed as knowledge has changed. And I think that's that's added to the the the, con the confusion because sometimes people say, including leaders, well, what advice am I following now? Uh, and so I think that's all in the mix of the challenge that leaders have had to, uh, to, to, to deal with, whether they're, they're leading a particular program or whether they're in, in government th themselves. Yes, adding to that, um, I think there's um, leaders have also been challenged to understand the thinking of the communities that they represent and work within and also to kind of communicate that thinking outside. So on the top of uh, vaccine hesitancy and vaccine refusal, that is an obvious one. Um, but it's been challenging to see, you know, in some cases there are, you know, quite historically uh, compelling reasons why minoritized, members of minoritized communities might be really hesitant about, um, you know, taking a vaccine that, that they don't see as having had a long-term uh, approval or where they may be first in line, right? Um, I live in Brighton and Hove, um, which has amongst the highest vaccine refusal for the childhood vaccines in the UK. And there it kind of comes out of like, um, what kind of left-wing um, holistic-led uh, distrust of um, sort of medical practices. It's very different. I see those two things as very different. Um, but we're all kind of, you know, as psychologists, all of a sudden, if you're looking at resilience under, under COVID, you're trying to um, understand areas that you yourself had not had expertise in. Communities or community leaders are the same thing, where they're suddenly becoming having to become experts in decision making and risk assessment um, and trying to understand ways of thinking uh, that they may not 
really themselves under uh, understand or endorse. Um, and I also think down to the individual level as well, COVID has continued to happen against a backdrop of systemic inequalities and injustices and also personal traumas. And we also kind of come to anything with our own personal trauma histories, as well as the, you know, kind of components that, that support us in our resilience. Um, and that's meant, meant that situations that might feel tol tolerable, sorry, that might feel tolerable for one person, feel really intolerable for another, um, that are, you know, hard for one group are intolerable for another group. Um, so, you know, if, if uh, again, I think I keep coming back to, to um, matters of race and ethnicity because there was such a public engagement with issues of disparities and injustice um, in 2020. That wasn't new, of course, it wasn't new. Um, and, but all of a sudden it was kind of everywhere, right? And I remember at the time, a lot of people saying like, I can only handle so much right now, right? And that's because there's racial traumas that are being activated alongside that as well. I think that's just really important that when we speak of a community leader, they are not just acting in their leadership role, they are also humans who are going through whatever else it is that they are going through. And that brings a lot of strength potentially, but, you know, it's hard. So this does build on what Rebecca was just saying, which is um, how did uh, marginalized communities build on currently existing practices of mutual aid and support and faith and such over the COVID? But also what can we learn about community resilience during COVID to restructure elements of our society to be more beneficial to individual and collective well-being in both marginalized and non-communities? You actually mentioned, I think you said the word faith. I'm, I'm not sure. Uh, let's see, say you did. Um, in, 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 so, in some number of communities in the US, uh, the religious community is really powerful for all kinds of reasons, including very everyday life mundane issues, taking care of the people in their, in their parish, in their synagogue, in their church, in their mosque, whatever the case may be. Uh, and there's been a lot of examples where, once again, the faith community has really stepped up in the face of, of COVID issues uh, in some very practical ways. For example, you, you're probably aware that there's been enormous food shortages in the United States among certain individuals and families. People didn't have food. And we've had, we have food banks and all the rest. But aside from that, the faith community has really stepped up once again to make sure that people had food had clean water and, and all the rest. The faith community also stepped up in terms of uh, uh, mass vaccinations. There are a number of examples in the Atlanta, Georgia uh, area. Atlanta is you know, the big city of, of the South. Uh, a lot of examples of the faith community really stepping up and, and making sure that a greater number of people had ready access to vaccinations if in fact they, they wanted them. So, so I think that has been a real pivotal issue uh, again, it, it's as someone mentioned, it, it, it's not a new system, but once again, the system shows that it can be mobilized to really make an important difference in certain communities. Being able to mobilize seems so key, and that is about individual level factors and resources and at the right time, being in the right place, having the right, um, you, know, you know, being on a day where you can face it versus a day when you can't. Um, 
But I think that what we've learned is that um, there's a lot to learn from natural communities, naturalistic communities, um, and that our policies and structures and funding should be built in support of those things, I think. Um, in terms of how do we support relationships with each other? How do we take away shame and stigma around needing support to just provide the support? And how do we also, you know, work beyond just providing help to making change? And, and that might sound political, but, you know, if you, if you do clinical work or occupational psychology or, or you know, practice space, you know that there's a difference between alleviating the distress and helping to ensure that, that you know, your client, service user, whatever, um, leaves that meeting with you a little bit better prepared for what's coming or what they may encounter, right? And I think that carries over, that it's, that we can look at what's worked for providing help and say, how do we how do we build that in so that the next time, or maybe there will never be a next time, I hope, <laughs> once was enough, it won't be quite so bad. I, I just want to add, I, I think um, a lot of what we're talking about, um, especially what Joe said earlier, that or, or maybe Rebecca, that this is not the first time that we would have a pandemic, or maybe um, um, uh, an adversity, uh, community adversity, not on the same level of pandemic. It might be 9-11, or it might be a, another terrorist attack. Uh, ultimately, this is, you know, th these are situations that requires um, resilience. And so we have to, as, as researchers, we have to flesh out what actually makes a community resilient. Um, we, we have to, you know, um, find out, be, is, it, is it faith? Is it, is it um, um, the demographics of a particular community? Or say, for instance, is it policy, um, as in the case of New Zealand or Sweden? So these are the questions that we have to, to answer as, as researchers, if, if, we, if we have to make um, a particular community more resilient. And that concludes the time we have for today's podcast. I'd like to thank our panel once again for being here and sharing their points of view. And thanks to you, our audience, for listening. Please join us again next month where we will be discussing child and adolescent resilience. The Resilience Research Group is a global group of researchers, practitioners, charities and organisations dedicated to developing high quality collaborative resilience research. Our aims are to improve access to, understanding of and quality of resilience research and to support and aid our members in effectively developing and disseminating their research. To find out more or to get involved, contact us on Twitter or LinkedIn.